Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. So we're gonna do something different this morning. It's a pediatric urology debate, but it's more of a like discussion um, on different ways to manage common pediatric urology topics. So we'll get started. So this is our first case. It's a five-year, five-day-old boy who has vomiting and uh, dehydration. His serum um, bicarb was 12. His potassium was 5.5. His creatinine was 2.2. Um, renal bladder ultrasound and a VCUG are shown. Um, a Foley was placed. His electrolyte abnormalities were corrected, and the patient was stabilized. So um, maybe Dr. Salzman, you could go through these images for us and tell us the diagnosis, um, and then you could start with your side. Sure. Well, first, thanks so much for having me involved with this. I think this is awesome what you guys have put together. Um, so what you see here on the, the first two images on the left, you've got a renal ultrasound, and you see some pretty significant hydronephrosis. Um, on each side. You know, there are two classification systems that you can use, the UTD and the SFU systems. That's sort of separate from what we're going to talk about today. Um, and then when you look at the third image from the left, you can see what's labeled B and what's labeled P. I think they're trying to show you a keyhole sign on the ultrasound where you see the posterior urethra is really dilated. And then on the VCUG, you see that same thing. Um, can you guys see my cursor here or no? Probably not. I don't think so. Okay, so on the right, on the, yeah, on the VCUG, basically, the, you can guess maybe there's a little defect there where there would be a valve, and then you see a very wide posterior urethra. Right. So let me see how I. I think I have to stop sharing, and okay. then you start. I think. Okay. Let's see. Um, okay. Let's try this. Okay, hang on. Uh, you know what? I can you pull up my slides because I it's going to sure. stop recording for me to do it. So yeah. sorry. <laughs> uh, hold on. Morning, Christina. I have to share my. I have to share my screen. Hi, Dr. Hensel. How are you, Christina? I'm here to learn. I'm good, thank you. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. I don't know why this is not opening. Actually, should we just sacrifice the recording aspect so Amanda can just do hers? Uh, I can't even pull the slides up, unfortunately, on my computer. For some reason, only this one is showing up. Hmm. I have, can you see my screen? Yeah. Yeah, we can see your screen with Amanda's slides. Um, hold on.
there we go. Okay. Okay. Okay, perfect. So you can just pop through these a little bit. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is vesicostomy um, for posterior urethral valves. Um, so when you initially get called to the NICU for a possible valve patient, the first thing you need to do is immediately decompress them with a Foley. Um, and then obviously the NICU hopefully is going to call you. And I think it's really important that you get renal involved early on because this is going to be a long-term relationship that these patients are going to have with both you as the pediatric urologist and the nephrology service. You're gonna be monitoring serial labs and very important to keep in mind that the first two to three days of life, the baby's creatinine is actually gonna be mom's creatinine, okay? <laughs> so you're gonna be making decisions based on the baby's renal function more at day two, three of life and beyond. And then same thing, you're gonna be getting a renal ultrasound, but in the first two to three days of life, you have a relative oliguria. So the patients aren't producing as much urine. So then any hydronephrosis you see may actually be underestimated. So you may be falsely reassured. And then you're gonna be getting a VCUG. Once you diagnose posterior urethral valves, okay, it's very obvious you need to discuss your management options and your timing to relieve the obstruction, but there's other things you need to consider too. So there's possible antibiotics, the consideration for ditropan, and then also discussing circumcision with these families. And I would recommend that you probably you wanna discuss circumcision early so that whatever intervention you do, you can potentially time that at the same time as your intervention. So we know through multiple studies that when you relieve the obstruction, you may or may not permanently or temporarily fix the bladder dysfunction, okay? And if you can go to the next thing. so. Typical things you guys will see on your test, as a toddler or a child, these patients will either need CIC or they may be socially continent or quote unquote normal. Then as they get older and they become teenagers, they almost always develop what's called myogenic failure. So here they have a big floppy bladder and they end up with over, overflow incontinence and, that, and then CIC to treat the overflow incontinence. Now, what we know is that it's the bladder dysfunction that drives the continence and the renal function. So that's why intervening early um, at relieving the obstruction is paramount. So obviously the timing centers on the baby's medical condition. So if you have a baby that's really, really doing poorly and you know, may not make it, leave the catheter until decisions are made for the, the global decisions for the child. And then if you have a rising creatinine or septic shock despite the Foley drainage, emergent vesicostomy is, is really the standard of what you need to do. But really you wanna wait until the baby is stabilized to do any intervention if you can. Now, vesicostomy is the historical gold standard, which is what I'm gonna talk about. And then Dr. Carpenter is gonna talk about ablation, which is sort of the new gold standard. So in certain situations, doing vesicostomy is, is absolutely the right answer and you'll get very little argument um, across pediatric urologists. If you've got teeny, teeny, bi tiny babies that can't accommodate a scope that really need to be decompressed, then a vesicostomy is reasonable. If they're not doing well, vesicostomy reasonable. If they're too sick to move, if their creatinine doesn't drop either after ablation or with a Foley, or if you have equipment issues or you can't transport the baby. So if you're in rural 
you know, rural, potentially Kentucky, and you don't have a pediatric uh, cystoscope or resectoscope, then it's very reasonable if you need to do something to do a vesicostomy, if you can't then transfer to a, a place that can do that. And then this is just a little tangent. I think, you know, you finish residency and everyone is a great endoscopist. You can, any kidney stone, any tumor in the upper tract, you can do it all. But pediatric and neonatal endoscopy is incredibly, incredibly difficult. And this humbles the most experienced urologists and endoscopists. So if you have any concern that there may be a technical issue with your ability to do this, this that is not something bad. It is okay to admit that. Doing a vesicostomy is a very reasonable option. So as we talked about, the present environment absolutely favors endoscopic management, but and vesicostomy is usually reserved for the more severe cases. What this does though in the literature is this doesn't really allow you to compare apples to apples, right? Because if most patients are treated with ablation, but only the worst cases with vesicostomy, then you're comparing patients with a milder phenotype of, of disease to ones with more severe disease. So when interpreting the literature, that's an important thing to remember. Now, opponents um, like Dr. Carpenter, when she's gonna be talking about why ablation is better, they talk about what happens to the bladder on urodynamics after each management strategy. So for those that are ablated, generally urodynamics shows normal capacity and normal compliance. But if you do a vesicostomy, those patients generally have lower capacity and poor, poorly compliant bladders. However, the important thing to remember is that renal outcomes and the deterioration of the bladder function is the same regardless of which intervention you do. And I'm gonna go through just one study that was done by one of my mentors that showed that endoscopy and vesicostomy are actually quite similar. So this was a study by Dr. Wilcox, who is the um, chair of pediatric urology um, in Denver, where I, where I did my fellowship. Um, and he, when he was in, at Great Ormond Street, looked at 54 boys, about half treated with vesicostomy, half with ablations. And then they looked at a variety of different outcomes, uh, renal ultrasound, creatinine, CKD, et cetera. So the important thing to, to look at here is not necessarily the exact numbers, but that there was no statistical difference between these two groups, okay? And for those patients who had urodynamics available, there was, um, there was no difference in, in the, those bladders. So to me, what that says is that the, whatever changes we see may be temporary, but the ultimate fate of the bladder and of the kidneys is sort of predetermined. The other thing to remember, if anyone has seen any vesicostomies, they're not the most pretty things and they can be scary to families, but remember that babies are gonna be in diapers until they're age two or three. So if you put your vesicostomy low enough, management's super easy and you know they're gonna be in a diaper, you're not gonna change anything that they have to do. You do need to discuss the risk of stenosis, which is around 10%. Prolapse, which is about 5%. I have a baby um, that I did a vesicostomy on with prolapse right now. Um, and then also local skin irritation and the need for repeat procedures. If we are going, if you're gonna undivert the patient, you definitely have signed them up for another operation. So the, this is just a diagram I actually found online, um, but this is essentially what I do. So you need to make sure you do a low transverse incision. You wanna make sure this is low enough that you're gonna be within the baby's diaper. And then a cruciate incision through the rectus fascia. 
very important. You want to try to identify the urachis and then make your vesicostomy where the urachis is. And the reason why is that that will decrease your chance of prolapse. And then you want to, you know, tack your fascia lower down into the bladder so that it doesn't retract, just like you would for an ileal conduit stoma. And then um, I rosebud the stoma um, at the level of the skin. Okay, so so you've kind of given away. So what I do in real life is I actually do valve ablations um, and vesicostomies only if the urethra is too small or if my ablation fails. So am I going to be able to share my screen or no? Um, yeah, you can try. Want to try? Okay. Sure. I stopped sharing mine. Um, okay. 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 Seems like it's working. Okay, so, um, but it's not letting me flip. Oh, wait, now it is, sorry. Okay, so I'm not gonna touch, um, I'm not gonna go over the things that Dr. Saltzman already went over, the original, uh, the initial management and things like that, um, but she obviously touched on the very salient points that these kids often, often have a lot of other things going on. So yes, we need to address the, the valves, but we also need to uh, make sure that the kid is stable overall. Um, but, so I'm going to argue for valve ablation, and I think the major thing to consider are the, um, yes, these children may not have ultimate uh, ultimately different outcomes, but the, the things that Dr. Salton touched on as the cons are much more important um, in that uh, parents hate vesicostomies. Yes, they are low, and yes, you use diapers, but they're constantly wet. Um, and they do need an, another procedure. So if we have an option to do something that doesn't involve those things, uh, I think we should go that route. So I'm gonna give an example of one of my patients. So this is an ultrasound of a baby that shows pretty typical things associated with PUV. You see the dilated bladder with the debris, you see dilated ureters bilaterally, a bilateral hydronephrosis. So this child had a catheter placed um, and underwent a VCUG. Um, and you can see some of the things that are typical of PUD babies. You see the dilated posterior urethra with the distal obstruction. And then this actually shows also that some of these babies can get trabeculation that shows the degree of outlet obstruction. Um, and then the other thing just to keep in mind, uh, if you're a resident going to see these consoles, you can uh, kind of see it even here. Uh, these kids often have very hypertrophied bladder neck. So one thing to keep in mind is when you're going to place a, con a console, uh, or excuse me, when you're going to see a console, you want to bring a coup de catheter with you because you're probably going to need it. So for this kid, um, based on this VCUG, I took him to the OR for valve ablation on day of life number two. So why did I do that? So it is the preferred initial surgical option for uh, all children, uh, born or stable children known to have uh, valve, uh, excuse me, posterior retral valves. So the treatment of the goals of treatment are to allow urine to flow through the urethra normally, and then also to enable normal bladder cycling, meaning filling and emptying um, under normal pressures. So there are definitely definitely different approaches to surgical ablation. Uh, my personal preference is to use a cold knife with a an eight French resectoscope. I use the sickle shaped. Um, the sickle-shaped knife preferentially, but either is fine. There are other options as well. You can use the Holmium laser 
um, and you could use a bug bee. So the benefit of these two is that uh, sometimes the urethra is too small to accommodate in the French resectoscope, but you use a smaller infant um, cystoscope and do the laser or the bug bee. Um, and then another option is a hot loop. Again, this would be through the resectoscope, but this is commonly only used in children who present later until they're a bit older or if they have recurrence. Um, so uh, after I resect the valves, just uh, for the residents, after I resect the valves, I will, excuse me, I always start with a regular cystoscopy to get an idea of the bladder anatomy. And then after I resect them, I usually sit just distal to where the valve tissue was with the water off and I crudate the bladder in order to demonstrate to myself that there is um, no further obstruction and you see good outflow through the ablated tissue. Um, and then also just as a technical point, uh, I always ablate at eight and four and then eight and four o'clock and then occasionally you may need to also ablate at 12, but generally eight and four. Um, so inevitably our preferences and the way that we practice are influenced by how we are trained and our own experience. So um, when I was in fellowship, we always used a cold knife and it's working for me. So I'm going to continue to do that for now. But um, one of the reasons that we used the cold knife was because I was always told that um, outcomes with cautery were poor and that there were higher rates of stricture. Um, there is some evidence of this in the literature, but I think ultimately um, the outcomes are, are certainly also a reflection of surgeon experience, because as uh, Dr. Saltzman alluded to, neonatal endoscopy certainly is um, difficult. So experience matters, and then also uh, one's own comfort with whichever techniques that they're using. So, but there was a, uh, excuse me, a paper published in the Journal of Pediatric Urology in 2013, and this compared um, 83 patients, half of which who underwent uh, coagulation with a, uh, or excuse me, cautery with a hook, and one others who had cold knife. And in this paper, they concluded that the, um, there was a significant difference in outcomes between the two groups and that the cautery group had a significantly higher rate of strictures. So they recommended against using cautery. And then this paper out of the Journal of Pediatric Surgery in 2010, this was a over a much longer, you know, you can see 20 year experience. I think they, they had 291 patients. Um, and this shows the breakdown of the different techniques that were used for the patients. Um, as you can see, the majority were either cold knife or um, when they write resectoscope, they actually mean using the hot loop and the resectoscope. And they said that um, they ultimately uh, concluded that the resectoscope was associated with a higher rate of strictures. Now, um, obviously, the other groups are very small, so you really can't make conclusions about whether or not the cold knife would also be superior to those groups. But based on, um, if you combine, I guess, this with the previous paper, you can suggest that uh, there might be better outcomes with the cold knife. So either way, I cannot say which approach is the best, but um, I do think ablation is uh, a superior choice overall, and my personal preference is to use the cold knife. Um, but to get back to this patient and his overall PUV management, I um, usually do a VCUG um, about two weeks, oh, excuse me, I leave a catheter in place for about 24 hours, as long as there are no major abnormality or uh, electrolyte abnormalities. And then I'll do a VCUG in about two weeks after that. Um, and this is my patient uh, two weeks post-ablation, uh, and you can see that you still have the dilated urethra, but now there's a very good flow of urine through the uh, urethra. That's it. <laughs> That's great. So um, if there's any questions, it doesn't look like there are any just yet in the chat, um, we'll get back to those. 
Um, so we'll go to our second debate now and I'll share my screen. Um, so we already talked about your real life practices. You both would do ablation looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Ron is yeah. gonna talk about um, the next debate. Yes, good morning everyone. Uh, so for our second case, uh, this is to discuss a two month old girl uh, who had a prenatal history of right hydronephrosis. Uh, the neonatal ultrasound images of the right kidney are shown on the left and the bladder images are shown on the right. Um, Dr. Saltzman, would you be able to take us through kind of what you, how you interpret the images and what your leading diagnosis is? Sure, so on the left, um, what you can see, you see this differential hydronephrosis. You see that there's really a lot of parenchymal thinning and some significant hydronephrosis at the left side of that image, which is by convention, the cranial side, so the upper pole. And then you see that the, the lower pole is, is completely normal, okay? So this could, vary, this could be a calocele diverticulum or a duplication of the bladder. And most likely in, with what this looks like and in this patient, it's a, it's a duplication. Um, of the kidney. And then on the right, when you look at the bladder, um, it looks like there's that anechoic structure sort of at the bottom left of the screen. And I assume that that's the distal ureter. Okay. Um, and so that, that would lead me to believe that the hydronephrosis is going all the way down to the bladder. The other thing to look at is that it doesn't appear that there's a ureteroceal in the bladder. Obviously you would need a few more images to know that for sure, but that's the other thing you're really looking for on your initial imaging. All right, so I'm gonna pull up um, Amanda's slides for us here. Okay, so for this one, I'm talking about observation initially. Um, and so when you first see this patient, you wanna make sure you do a really good physical exam because there can be a lot of associated anatomic abnormalities with um, collecting system and, and renal duplications. Um, you can go to the next thing. So you want to look for anorectal anomalies. Most importantly, probably, you want to look for vaginal duplications and anomalies because of the same embryologic origin, which we'll get into. Um, there, there can be a lot of associated vaginal issues. And then we would hope um, that one of us would be able to detect some major abdominal wall defects like extropy that could also happen. Now, keep in mind here that gender may affect how these patients present, not necessarily neonatally, but certainly later in life. So no discussion on ureteral duplications is, is complete without talking about the Weigert-Meyer rule. And the reason I really bring this up um, is because I know boards have been delayed, but there will be a question every year on written boards, on in-service exams, you have to know this. Okay, and so when you talk about the lower pole, the lower pole can do three things, and basically only three things, okay? It can be normal, it can have reflux, which would be most common, and or it could have a UPJ obstruction, okay? It can't have ureteroceles, it can't do ectopic, it can't be an ectopic ureter, okay? The other thing that you may be asked about is which, when you look in the bladder on cystoscopy, which UO is associated which, with which moiety? So the way I remembered it is L and L, so the lower is always lateral, and then LR is lower refluxes. Importantly, the lower pole of the kidney should do two-thirds of that side's function, okay? Now when we look at the upper pole, the, there can only be three things that the upper pole can be. So normal, a ureteroceal, which is why I made the distinction of looking for that on, in the bladder on the ultrasound, or an ectopic ureter. 
Okay. It doesn't, it, the upper pole doesn't usually do UPJ obstructions. It doesn't usually have reflux. Those are the three things it does. So when you see this on a test, they'll give you, a, you know, clearly a lower pole issue, but they'll give you all the upper pole options except for reflux or UPJ obstruction. And that's how you can answer the question right. Okay. So um, in general, the upper usually obstructs, it's more medial, and then it contributes one third of that side of the, of that side's renal function. So here we've got sagittal images of uh, the female pelvis on the left and the male on the right. And so the lines, the thickness of these lines basically um, represents the frequency of where these ectopic ureters insert. So you can see in both male and female, it's usually sort of more distal in the trigone, potentially in the urethra. But the key here is to note this, where the sphincter is. So in a male, the ectopic ureter will always insert above the sphincter. So males will never present with incontinence. Whereas females, they can, the, the insertion can happen anywhere, sort of really the vagina is common or distal to, to the sphincter. So they can present with the classic continuous incontinence in older children. So when we, just like you guys presented in the case, when you've got some concern, prenatal hydro, UTI, whatever, you begin with a renal ultrasound. Then what I usually do, again, if the, if the kidney is a duplex kidney, but there's no hydro, then there's no reason to do anything, okay? Um, not yet, at least. And then, but if you do see any abnormalities, then I follow it with a VCUG, and then I get a functional study. The reason for the VCUG is, to, is for surgical planning, whether you need to do a common sheath reimplant versus a UU, which I think Dr. Carpenter will talk about. And then I use the MAG3 to evaluate function and drainage because this can potentially narrow or widen surgical options to present to the family. Remember that you may be seeing these patients very soon after they're born because this was prenatal hydro. However, a MAG3 is not super useful until the kidneys are a little bit more mature because the kidneys won't take up that radio tracer. So you usually try to wait between six and eight weeks corrected for gestational age. So what is obstruction? So this is a shout out actually to Chris Bain, who was in our fellowship class um, as well. And obstruction in children is really, is really nebulous, actually. In adults, we're taught it's very easy. T1 half, more than 20 minutes, obstruction, period. Well, in kids, the T1 half is really very poorly correlated with obstruction. And there's a lot of obstruction in children in general that will resolve spontaneously. And so this article that was written by Dr. Bain is, is a really, really good summary um, that if anyone wanted to look at, look at that, I, I, that's, it's a reasonably quick read for you to get a lot out of that paper. And remember that not all studies are created equal. So I know for me, I practice in, I have a children's hospital within an adult hospital. So I'll show you a case of mine um, next where, where there, some communication with your radiologist is helpful. So this is the excretory phase of a MAG3. And what you can see here is that the upper pole definitely doesn't drain, okay? And it appears that it doesn't drain all the way down to the bladder because you see the contrast in the ureter. Now, when I was, if you can go to the next one. When I was initially given the result, they just did left and right. They didn't differentiate the duplex kidney, which is really what I wanted the study for. So you can see here, it looks like, I think this is 56% function on the left, 44 on the right, and the, the right looks like it drains well, and the left, you're not sure. Um, so can you go a couple more? Yep, one more. 
And then here, so I called radiology and I said, hey, this is a duplex kidney. I need you to differentiate the upper and the lower poles of the left. And so what you have here is the upper pole is in red and the lower pole in green. So you see that the green curve drains very well. The left doesn't drain well at all. But if you look at the differential function, it's about one third, two thirds, okay? So the function has been retained on this patient. Um, you can go to the next one. So there are no real trials examining intervention versus observation. And this is much more gestalt and what you've been trained in rather than algorithm. And really here, counseling is the key for patients and families. So when I'm making this decision of what to do, um, and I'm talking about observation, the things that are important to me are that these babies are often young and small. So young babies have a risk of anesthesia. Um, the various procedures can be very difficult depending on what you do at different ages. If you're gonna be talking about UUs, you can have major mismatch in size of the ureters, which can be technically challenging. And my question is for what immediate gain? Okay, we, if patients are asymptomatic and their function is okay, why do you need to do anything until the patient um, really has, has a strong indication for surgery? And again, and this, is, and this is very much sort of what I was taught and, and carries over from some other areas of pediatric urology. But in general, I try to avoid surgery despite liking to operate until the patient really asks for it. Okay, if you do a UU, you risk the lower moiety, the drainage of the lower moiety. Um, if you do an upper pole hemi-nephrectomy, which is a great operation, you've got about a 5% risk of injury to the adjacent renal tissue. And then we all know that complications happen even in the most straightforward of cases. Um, so generally, if you're gonna operate, you want to operate for a, a very strong reason. Um, Let's see, what, I, what do I have on that? Nothing. Okay, that's it. <laughs> or is there something on that? Sorry. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it just goes through what, I'll do, what I usually do, but I can tell you. Oh, okay. So um, generally, people, if you're going to observe, you're going to be doing serial imaging, usually ultrasounds, every three to six months, depending on the age of the patient. And some may periodically also get a functional study to look for that renal function and worsening of that. Um, most people would agree the threshold for intervention, UTIs, worsening hydro, loss of function, incontinence after they're potty trained, because before they're potty trained, you can't really tell if a child is incontinent or not, pain or parental preference. And this is really very similar to how UPJ obstructions are managed and, and the, in, the thresholds for intervention in that scenario. So we'll, we'll keep this a surprise for now. We'll go to Dr. Carpenter. Here's a... Are you still sharing? Yeah, I'm just gonna. If you, I'll share for you. If that's okay. Okay. Sure. No, the next button. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I I don't know that this debate is so clear-cut for this one because I think there's um, parts of uh, observation and surgery kind of go hand in hand. I agree with Dr. Saltzman that um, we certainly shouldn't be operating on anyone that comes into your office with hydronephrosis. So there is a degree of observation, but um, for this two-month-old with a obstructed upper pole, 
Um, perhaps she is very similar to a patient that I saw in my office who I ended up operating on when she was three months old. So yes, it's still very early, but there was a period of observation for those three months. So for instance, this is um, that patient. This was an, an ultrasound when she was two weeks old. Um, I was concerned um, enough that I asked the patient to come back about three weeks later, and I repeated the ultrasound at that time. Um, and I also got a VCUG at that time. Yeah, um, hit it again. Okay. So got a VCUG at the time. So obviously there's certainly worsening hydronephrosis and hydroureter here, but there's still good parenchyma. Go ahead to the next. So again, the hydronephrosis and hydroureter nephrosis worsened again here. Um, the parenchyma, go back. <laughs> Um, but the parenchyma was still very, uh, what's that? I think someone's not. Okay. Um, so anyway, so the parenchyma is still thick here. So, but then I saw the patient again, two weeks later. And in this one, you can't see it as well, but the, upper pole parenchyma started to thin a little bit. And then more importantly, not more importantly, but also in this ultrasound image, which you can't see very well, the patient started having lower pole dilatation as well. So at this point, it became clear that the patient did require surgery. And for this patient, I ended up doing an upper to lower pole ureterostomy. Um, so then this is that same child one month after surgery. So no, her hydronephrosis hasn't resolved completely, but it's clearly significantly improved. And I would expect with time that um, it will continue, to, uh, that it may continue to improve. But of course, if it doesn't, then uh, we'll look into that again. But um, okay, so but why did I choose this particular operation? Um, there are a variety of operations available for this type of issue, and it's certainly not one size fits all. So you're really killing my timing here, Nina. <laughs> um, so for first, the goals of intervention. Um, sorry, I lost my place. So uh, the goals of intervention are to preserve renal function, um, to eliminate infection, obstruction, and or reflux, and then of course to maintain con uh, continence as well. Um, and then I've listed a few. Um, so we've all decided that we're going to go forward with surgery, but then there's a, a lot of surgeries that are available. So it's also important to be able to decide which is appropriate when. So I have um, listed a couple of the different approaches here, and I will admit these are very oversimplified. And even within these general categories, there's a lot of nuances um, and different ways of approaching them. But just for to go over, you know, kind of common scenarios and common denominators for the residents, I thought that these were a good grouping. Um, so, for example, for my patient, I chose to do a upper to lower pole ureterostomy. Um, this was because she had salvageable upper pole parenchyma and a non-refluxing lower moiety. So for this operation, um, I usually place a an open-ended stent into the lower pole ureter in order to aid in identification. Um, of course, you um, it should be very obvious which is the upper and which is the lower because the upper is very dilated, but it doesn't take very long to put an open-ended in, so why not um, be sure? So 
Um, and then the procedures, I perform it through a fan seal incision. Um, you identify the, the, the ureters, you um, ligate the upper pole ureter and dissect out the distal remnant, and then you perform an angicide uh, ureteral ureterostomy. So, but what if the parenchyma didn't appear as healthy uh, in that upper pole um, moiety? So a good option for that patient would be go to be go, excuse me, to go forward with a DMSA. I know that those are, um, I know, Dr. Saltzman alluded to a MAG-3 scan. Um, DMSA scans, I know from my training in, in fellowship and residency are not as widely available. Here at Choney, it's very easy to get them. So um, because they can be done in younger infants than MAG-3 scans, um, in these really small babies, I do end up using DMSA scans much more regularly than I ever did in training. Um, but so for these babies, the traditional option would be to go forward with a heminephrectomy. This removes the non-viable segment while preserving the lower pole. Um, but this can be a very morbid operation. Um, you know, it's obviously a flank incision. Um, sometimes you might need to make a counter incision in order to dissect out the dilated upper uh, pole ureter. So it can be very involved. So um, there have been newer approaches. Um, there was a study at a CHOP that showed that um, there was no difference in that you could do a ureteral ureterostomy for these babies as well, and that there was no difference in outcomes based on the function of the upper pole. So um, it might be a little bit more technically challenging because the ureter might be bigger and dilated, but they did not find any difference even in those scenarios for outcomes. Um, and then a newer option is ureteral ligation. So for these, um, this is done laparoscopically. This was first presented in 2014 out of sick kids in Toronto. And these, this was originally presented in, um, in girls, in adolescent girls who presented with mild persistence in, persistent incontinence who were worked up and eventually found to have a non-functioning um, ectopic upper pole. So for those nine girls, they uh, did exactly what's shown in the picture. They would put a stent up in the lower pole, and then they would do a very quick laparoscopic. This is a very quick procedure. You basically just identify the ureters crossing over the iliac. You dissect out the upper pole, and then clip both of the uh, clip the upper pole ureter. Um, and all of those nine girls, there um, there was um, they had no complications, and they did great, and their incontinence stopped immediately. So after this was originally published, um, there's a lot of questions about how these kids would do long-term, if there was any res residual function of the upper pole, if they would develop hydro or pain, or how applicable this was to other groups and not just this very one specific type of patient. And in 2018, they published a follow-up paper, and that included both boys and girls and uh, for a multitude of different applications. And they found that all patients um, with these, you know, poorly functional or non-functional uh, moieties did very well, and this was a great option, um, a very minimally invasive option. The only patient they had in their series that had any complications was a patient who um, developed pyonephrosis and ultimately ended up having to have additional surgery, and that, that patient, excuse me, had 10, greater than 10% function on DMSA scans. So they postulated that um, it was actually poor patient selection. And so for those patients that have more functional upper poles, this might not be the best option. Um, so moving on from that, um, what if there is good parenchyma, but there is reflux into the lower pole? So for those patients, a common G3 implantation is a great option because you address both issues at the same time. 
So the question really isn't if we should go observe or go forward with surgery, but, but which surgery is appropriate and when. Thanks. I think, um, oh, do you want, Nina, do you want to go to the slide of the, uh, there was one other slide in Dr. Salson. Oh, I can just really quickly summarize. So um, I actually completely agree with, with Christina. So I generally try to observe until the patient gives me some reason to operate. So worsening hydro, UTIs, et cetera. So actually that patient that I showed you, their mag her MAG-3 scan, um, when she was three months, I did uh, a cutaneous ureterostomy. I actually went in to do a UU, um, but her ureter was, the diameter was about two centimeters and her, her recipient ureter, the lower moiety ureter was very, very small. Um, and I, I felt that it was, I, it was gonna be safer um, to just divert her for now and then um, put her back together uh, as she grows. And uh, I was supposed to do her right at the beginning of COVID, so she's still pending. <laughs> and Dr. Carpenter, I have a question for you. You, you kind of alluded to this idea yeah. of performing a UU for a non-functional upper pulmoidy. How do you, how are people justifying doing surgery when it's for unclear benefit? So, I mean, you know, that I haven't done that in my personal practice, but uh, going based off that paper, so presumably the, there were indications for it. So maybe the kid was having UTIs or, you know, blood pressure issues or, some, or maybe the hydra was affecting the lower pole, something like that along those lines. Um, and so I think the argument is that something needed to be done. And so the, the option, the traditional option is to do a upper pole partial nephrectomy. And since that is such a big operation, I think they were looking to find something with, you know, less morbidity and, um, you know, not, not something that might, doesn't have as high of a potential compromise to the healthy lower pole ureter. So it's not, it, the option wasn't do this or do nothing. It was like do this or do a bigger operation. I see. And then the second question I have is kind of a couple of these options ultimately leave the patient with a stump and kind of depends on the length of that stump. Can you comment on, I mean, everyone has opinions on how important the stump is. Can both of you comment maybe what you, how you manage the stumps and. Sure. So, I mean, for me, I try to get as low as possible, but you, you know, inevitably when you get that post-op ultrasound and then, you know, they say that there is a, some dilation right below the ureter and you, or right below the bladder and you know that that's that distal stump. It is very frustrating. Um, anecdotally, I mean, I, you know, we're both new at a fellow or, you know, only two years at a fellowship, so I don't have a ton of experience to draw on my own, but it hasn't been a problem for me yet. But in the literature, they do say that um, usually it does not tend to cause problems. If there is anything, a lot of times it's in the early on, they might develop UTIs in the beginning, but a lot of times it, it goes away with time. Yeah, so I do the exact same thing. I really, I try to get as much of the ureter out as I possibly can, um, but, I, but I definitely, if it becomes too difficult, I just, I will stop because I don't want to cause some type of vaginal injury or something like that um, for the patient. I try to get out as much as I can. Um, I usually do put a clip down there um, and so I usually close the stump, but there is tons of debate about should you close it? Should you leave it open? And I think it really depends if you've got, if it's, if it's going into the vagina and, and, you know, you've got this continuous incontinence, I think, you know, closing it makes sense that you, that you're closing this connection that you're going to leave into, into the pelvis. 
Um, <clears throat> the one scenario that I see with a potential problem is if it if it is inserting into into the bladder neck itself or into the sphincter um, and and it's obstructed, then clipping it may not be bad uh, or may be bad, I should say. But then I look at what what the University of Toronto is doing at SickKids and what Armando's doing, and you know he's he's clipping them way up high and, and that creates, that creates a, a pocket that doesn't drain well and they seem to be doing fine. So I'm, I'm not really sure it matters if you leave it open or you clip it. Okay. Okay. Excellent. So I think we have time for one more debate. Um, so de debate number three is a full-term boy is noted in the newborn nursery and day of life one to have a red hard left hemiscrotum. The ultrasound um, is shown below and it demonstrates no flow to the left side with intact flow on the contralateral right testicle. Um, so maybe Christina, you could just uh, tell us the diagnosis here and, and uh, talk about your side. I'll bring up your-, your... Sure, so, well, hold on, don't bring up my slides yet. I'll just, um, because okay. Amanda has more background slides for the beginning part, but- um, Okay. Um, so I'll just, what did you, the first question you asked me? I mean, the slide, what did you ask me, sir? Just uh, going over the diagnosis. Oh, okay. So, I mean, I can just say briefly, but Amanda has some slides that are helpful for, you know, differentiating the two different types of torsion and things like that. But, um, so, I mean, uh, meninofasicular torsion is torsion that uh, occurs within 30 days of life. It occurs in about 6.1 per 100,000 um, cases. Um, and uh, it's generally not salvageable, but that's part of the debate. <laughs> so um, I can go first with the argument part if you want, but uh, Amanda's slides give a background, so. Sure, I'll bring up Amanda's slides then. <clears throat> okay, so, um, it's I would say the chance of you on your in-service or on your written board exams getting a question on neonatal torsion is incredibly high um, and, to, and to know the, the, the difference in the etiology of them. So um, neonatal torsion is generally an extravaginal torsion, okay? And this happens because the visceral and the parietal tunica vaginalis aren't fused yet. So you get, you get a twisting of the, of the um, visceral tunica vaginalis within the parietal tunica vaginalis. Um, and that's in contrast to postnatal or, or pubertal um, or adult testicular torsion, where really it, it's, it's an interesting fusion phenomenon with where the tunica vaginalis connects to the spermatic cord that creates the bell clapper deformity. Um, I had one of my attendings in residency, Dr. Martin, um, who, what, who tried to figure this out on every patient. And what I learned is it's incredibly, incredibly difficult to see. And so you just assume everyone has it. So when you get called to the NICU for a potential torsion, obviously you're gonna repeat your physical exam. Um, I think a scrotal ultrasound is incredibly, incredibly important. There are some people who would say, exam is enough, but there are lots of things that can happen to newborn babies. So you can have hernias and you can have tumors. And certainly the incision that you make would very much be affected by knowing if you were going into the operating room handling one of these as opposed to a testicular torsion. So very important. And then, but really the diagnosis is not difficult. It's really the counseling. This is where there are a lot of nuances within pediatric urology. 
So as Dr. Carpenter mentioned, salvage of the affected testis is highly unlikely, okay? Everyone will agree with that. And what she's gonna talk about probably are risks of anesthesia, the cost of the OR, and that you never really save anything. So why do you need to expose the child to an operation? However, I would say that really your decision-making needs to be shifted to focus to the contralateral side because everything you're trying to do with surgery is to help the contralateral side. So there are several reported cases of bilateral neonatal torsion, all right? Physical exam may only implicate one side, but the other side is asymptomatically twisted. I saw this in fellowship. I believe that this happens. Um, th this risk is about 5% in the literature. And so I said, how can this be ignored? Okay. And then there is also a metachronous risk of contralateral torsion in the newborn period, in the first four to eight weeks, four to six weeks of life. And then there are some reports that question actually, is it extravaginal torsion or can some patients have an intravaginal torsion? So if the mechanism is unclear and there may be cases where the other side may be um, affected, just like a post-pubertal patient where it's you, you duplex the other side, period, end of story. Why would you not do that for a neonate? And most importantly, this centers around the fact that the loss of both testicles due to neonatal torsion is an absolute catastrophe. There are some groups, mainly in the United States, and I actually think at LIJ, um, this was uh, Dr. Franco when he was there, um, and Dr. Palmer, that they do really try to distinguish a prenatal torsion from a neo or a postnatal torsion. And as the, as the names suggest, pre happens before delivery. And, this, and the way you know this is the initial exam is abnormal. You have no chance of salvage, so they advocate for delayed exploration. But if it happens neonatally or postnatally, the exam is initially normal and then it changes. And in those situations, you may have a possible salvage. But this really relies on the physical exam of a non-urologist or a parent. And all of us who, I mean, about a month into being a urology resident, you realize how variable physical exams of the, of the scrotum and the GU system can be. So really, emergent exploration does a lot to alleviate parental concerns you, that you did as much as you could, as early as you could, and the outcome was the outcome. It wasn't affected by the timing or waiting. So that may ameliorate some of their guilt or anxiety. <clears throat> and then remember that being a new parent is really hard. So relying on the parents to do these checks during diaper changes, that may cause a lot of anxiety for them. And they're so terrified of missing something during a very, very stressful time in a new parent's life. All right, we'll go to Christina. So I said this part already. Um, so again, uh, the options are observation versus surgery, and um, I agree with Dr. Saltzman that there are a lot of uh, anxiety things for parents in the new uh, neonate period. So, but why would you then add on top of that putting their child under surgery? So there is uh, good evidence for observing instead. <clears throat> so people, uh, everyone agrees. Well, I guess not everyone agrees, but people argue that these testicles are never salvageable. So um, they then go on to then discuss the, the discussion about the asynchronous bilateral torsion. This is extremely rare. So I unfortunately have not seen this, um, though Dr. Sultan did. 
Um, and then, you know, there are several um, anecdotal reports from people with far more experience than I do that um, will contest that the quoted rate of 10% that's in the literature is exceedingly high. And then I also think that this asynchronous bilateral torsion also has to be talked about in the, in the context of a vanishing testis. So if a patient came in, if a three-year-old patient came into my office with a non-palpable testis, and I did a workup and ultimately diagnosed him with vanishing testis syndrome. I and I think most pediatric urologists would not then go and uh, do an orchiopexy on the contralateral side. So we also would agree that vanishing testis syndrome is essentially an unrecognized neonatal torsion event, which resulted in the testicular atrophy. So if we're not taking a three-year-old to do a contralateral orchiopexy, arguably while he's already under anesthesia for the diagnostic laparoscopy to get that, to uh, diagnose that, why would we then take a neonate to the operating room for an unnecessary operation? Particularly because neonates um, are at, have high anesthetic risk due to their unique physiology. And they also have um, a high surgical risk. There was a retrospective review done of patients who under uh, 47 patients um, over a 19-year time period who underwent um, neonatal or exploration for neonatal torsion. Um, and of these patients, there was an 18% uh, complication risk, which included contralateral testicular atrophy. So if we're if doing an operation exposes these patients to potentially 18% risk, and we can just ask the parents to examine the scrotum with every diaper change, which they're going to be doing anyway, because even if their child got surgery, if they're new parents, they're going to be looking at that scrotum every single day with every diaper change. So why don't we just take the surgery out and just observe, have them just observe the normal scrotum, just because just like an adolescent that comes to the ER with a um, with a torsion, they present with pain and redness and abnormalities with their scrotum. So does the neonate. No, they're not going to tell you their testicle hurts, but they'll be crying and the, the scrotum will be red. And when the parents examine that uh, scrotum, we'll be able to be, they'll notify us and we'll take them to the operating room for intervention, but only if necessary. All right, so um, we can get back to Amanda and see what you would do. So in real life, I do prompt surgery. Um, and I will say, so that's that's not emergent surgery and that's not intervention. I, I It's sort of this, uh, it's a little bit nebulous. So if I get called during the day, I, I add it on that day. But if I get a phone call at one in the morning, I don't mobilize the OR and take the patient to the OR then, I take them first thing the next morning. Um, and that's, that's very much what was done where I trained. Um, and I, I do think that way it, it's sort of a healthy balance of making sure that I deal with the contralateral side because I do think that needs to be dealt with. Um, but I also recognize that you know, the, the difference of potentially six hours, I, I'm, I'm not sure how much that's really gonna make a difference. And Dr. Carpenter, what is your uh, practice in real life? Same as Amanda. <laughs> Great. I also will take by the same algorithm. Great. I'm going to stop sharing. I think we are <laughs> out of time. Um, if there's any questions, um, there's. Yeah, a we got a yeah. we got a couple questions. Uh, Ezra asked if there's a role for endoscopic incision of obstructive ureteral seals. 
So I think for your reader seals, that's a little bit different than, than the patients we were talking about. We were talking about mainly the ones with ectopic ureters, but your reader seals, absolutely. I, I think the vast majority of pediatric urologists will try to manage these endoscopically first with puncture. And there's a whole variety of ways that you can do that, different techniques, different um, tools. Um, but I think definitely in, in sizing your reader seals is absolutely, absolutely first line. Uh, Christina, do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Um, before you did anything else, that'd be within along the same timeline of PUV. Mm -hmm. I agree. I have um, a question about the um, actually when you operate on neonatal torsion, can you talk about your surgical technique and how it might vary from older kids? Um, creating it, do you routinely create a dartos pouch? Do you do anything differently with regards to sutures or anything like that? So for me, I don't do it differently. I don't know about you, Amanda. Nope, I do the exact same. I do a midline incision. Um, you know, I, I make my pocket and I, I tack everything down in three locations with a small proline. Um, I know we're at a fellowship, they use PDS, but that's a holdover from residency. Okay. Yeah, I, I use PDS. But. <laughs> All right. Um, so we're out of time for today. 